Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Anita Abaisha, the founder of iBias VR, where she develops virtual reality training programs that bridge the gap between education and the job market with a focus on professional and life skills. She's also the founder of Black Ladies Talk, which is the largest black women's community in Europe. Welcome to the show, Anita. Thank you. So it's so good to have you. I've been really looking forward to talking again. And I guess as we get started here, I'd love to hear how you got into this work of bias training in VR. How did, how did you get into this? Uh, how did I get into this? I showed a meeting with someone who was VR expert. And he started talking about the possibilities with VR. And then as our conversation was going, I was talking about what I was doing uh, when it comes to learning and development. And then we got to the point of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And then he told me, well, VR is actually a great tool to experience certain kind of things. And that really got me curious. So then I tried VR myself, and from there on, I saw the possibilities, and I think that was somewhere in 2019. And from there on, I started reading all kinds of articles, but also I had this gut feeling that there was a lot going on when it comes to training in the DEI market, but what was the impact of, of all of these trainings and I guess it was not that much because I experienced that there wasn't a lot of change in the market. But also when I was talking to people, people got annoyed by the subject. So I was like, hmm, what can I do? And I also promised not to get started in that market until I had the solution. And when this guy told me about VR, I was like, I think this is a big part of the solution. It's not a silver bullet. But I do think this is a solution just simply because of the fact that it helps you to stand in somebody else's shoes and to see others' perspective. So that's where it all started. So what do you think was the thing that folks found so annoying about the training previously? Um, A lot of information, a lot of uh, knowledge. But uh, the question I often he heard and still hear is, what can I do different after this training? And if you still have a question like that after you finish the training, it wasn't a good training. 
because the training did not offer you perspective of how to change your behavior. Mm. So these were the things I was I was hearing, and I was like, okay, this really this really needs to change um, because of the impact of the EI on people's lives. Absolutely. And did you find that you know that was in a large part to do with the interactions that were possible? when you're not in a VR environment, or was it also around the actual curriculum that was developed? I think it's a combination of both. So yes, the curriculum, if it was even a curriculum, if it wasn't just a PowerPoint in most of the cases, but also the opportunity with VR. The thing is, the instruments people use when it comes to training are videos, storytelling, yeah, sometimes even theater, but theater is 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 com- comes close. But I think the big difference is with VR when you put these glasses on, your brain shuts down from reality and starts working on the virtual reality, and that's the big difference. Because one of the things we aren't able to see from others is the is the perspective of others, the environment where people are acting in. And that is so important when it comes to behavior, but also for people to get triggered. So when you're experiencing something, you're responding on your environment often. And this environment triggers something, which by its turn triggers emotion, and then you'll get touched in some way. And with VR, you can have give people that experience, which is so important. And when it comes to storytelling or even watching a movie, it's not the same. Also, when your background is, when you have different backgrounds, somebody can tell you a story, but I always compare it with what I'm doing now. So if we're in a group, and I'm giving 10 people VR glasses and they're all watching the same movie at the same time. I know they're seeing the same image. But if I'm telling a story to 10 people who are sitting in the same space, depending on their background, and if we could see what the image was in their heads, we would see probably 10 different images. And those images were formed by their background, education, etc. Mm. And that's the big difference. Well, that's really fascinating because it, it raises this other point, which is, you know, if we're in a VR space and we're all experiencing the same content, it kind of levels the playing field a bit because, Definitely. you know, if you and I were to sit down right now and and watch the same video content or read the same piece of content or look at zoom mm-hmm. at the same time mm-hmm. you got your macbook air down on your table i've got my screen up i'm standing you know? yeah but when we put on these goggles it kind of creates the same perspective which is Definitely. something that i was thinking about when you were sharing yes it creates the same perspective and what's really interesting vr by itself it's just a technical tool so it's not a goal it's an instrument for us to use to help us to get the dialogue starting. And what's really interesting is when you're having a dialogue afterwards, that's really interesting because if you start asking how did people feel, how did they experience things, 
they're naming the same emotions. So that is really fascinating. They're naming the same emotions, but also uh, they still can have their own opinion about it. But the opinion in this case is not really where it's all about. It's what, what did it trigger? What kind of feeling did it trigger? And those are beautiful uh, dialogues to have. Well, how did you feel? Uh, because we don't have these conversations often. Mm. Most of the time we skip the feeling part and we go to, well, my opinion is this or that. And in this case, your opinion doesn't matter. What did you feel? What did you experience? That's far more interesting. And that's what VR triggers. You know, coming back to the whole question around how am I going to behave differently or how do, how do I put this into action? Mm-hmm. I feel like those debriefs, those moments where we have a dialogue around emotions and feelings and reactions and mm-hmm. and just reflecting together as a group mm-hmm. allow us to get to those epiphanies of how we put it into action. Definitely, definitely. And sometimes in some of our workshop, we also give like half of the group, we give them a goggle. And the other half, we don't give them, but we do give them the assignment to mm. observate. What do they see? What's happening with these people who are having the goggles on? And that's also, this, those are like two groups. And that's really fascinating what, what comes out of that and what do people learn from observating other people? Because these people, you're observating them when they are experiencing something that they aren't used to. And that's, yeah, those, those conversations are like really next level. Wow. What are some of the things that you hear from folks when they are, you know, reflecting on what they noticed about, you know, observing the folks that had goggles on? They see people get uncomfortable. They see people look unhappy, sad. They see how people change their body language they people get aware get more aware because people are aware that we do have body language but because we actually don't really see it we don't really focus on it they're like oh wow i can see much more than i thought before actually so people are surprised how much they can see when they're really observating. Wow, that's really fascinating, the, the body language piece, because I think as humans, definitely culturally in the U.S., you know, it's not necessarily acceptable, or we just don't feel comfortable just staring at other people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But if we're given permission to do that as an exercise in empathy, and with the goggles on, it kind of makes it easier for us to move past that cultural barrier, right? Because mm-hmm. people can't see us watching, you know? Exactly. And just watching how they move their shoulders, how yeah. they hold their head. Even though we can't see their yeah. eyes, we can see how they might, like, be, you know, how's their nose moving? How's the corner of their mouth moving? Mm-hmm. And those could be really amazing cues to start to key in on if we're not yes. noticing these things in, in everyday work. But Definitely, exactly. Like you're saying, everyday work. So people tell me, like, But if I do this same thing on the work floor, then I'm able to see a lot more. And then I tell them exactly. And that's what I want you to do. That's what I want you to be aware of, that there's so much more to see if we really look. But do we often take the time to look, to observate when we're working? Or are we rushing to the one meeting to the other? And even in a meeting, if you 
do listen, but you also really start observating to look at your colleagues and really see them. What is happening in the dynamics? What is happening if you leave the words out? And those are interesting things. Mm. We often tend to think that we're uh, communicating with words, but words is really just a part. There's so much more to see what people don't say with words, but do say with their body language, with their facial expression, etc. Yeah, it makes me think about you know this idea of listening with our eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely, you know, our ears aren't our only mechanism for you know picking up on how people are feeling and how people are being treated. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And one thing it got me aware of was what is said, but what's also not being said, but it's still in the same message. Mm. Wow, so cool. So it's interesting to listen to what's been said. But while you're saying that, what are you also saying? Mm-hmm. The implicit message. So I want to help listeners understand a little bit more about, you know, what's going on on the other side of the visor. You know, while these coworkers are observing folks that have the headsets on, what are these people experiencing that uh, will cause these, you know, physical reactions that the others are observing? So the scenarios we're working with, uh, when it comes to DEI, We want to have people experience as much forms of diversity as is possible uh, to capture with VR. So one of the things that is really powerful is the experience of neurodiversity. In this case, a little girl with autism, with the diagnosis of autism, and she's attending a party. This is a prize party. But for people with the diagnosis of autism, it's not always easy to attend a party, especially if your triggers are being sensitive for sounds, for for sharp sounds, Mm -hmm. being sensitive for crowded places, being sensitive or... I'm not or not all the time seeing all of the faces, but sometimes even seeing blurry faces. And you're trying to fit in, but uh, you can't. You just can't. It's not that you don't want to, but you can't. So when people are observating these people, they see them literally changing their position. They see people kind of trying to want to step behind, shrink down, but also sweaty hands. People, they put their hands together and just, yeah, you see them getting, you see, oh, there's so much to see. And that's the most interesting part because while People are experiencing this other world, the world of neurodiversity. You see these moments when something is challenging to them, when it gets intense in the movie. So at a certain point, there's this board, is the plate is falling on the floor. You hear this sharp sound and you see people respond in their body language. Sometimes when the scene changes... And there are several people with the goggles on. You see all of them change their position and start moving again. So it's, yeah, there's there's so much to see. And that's, yeah, that's really interesting. So I'm curious, have you explored or thought about the idea of having people who maybe haven't experienced biases or, you know, these feelings of being rejected or, or what have you? 
experiencing moments like that? One thing that is happening, because I haven't specifically put these kind of people, did the test with these kind of people, but what happens is, for example, when we show the movie of neurodiversity, people start saying like, oh, but but this is me. Mm. This is me. This is, I, I, I've got this same thing. It's, uh, I don't like parties either, or I don't like crowded spaces. So people recognize themselves in the person they're watching. They're like, oh, this, but this is me. And they discover that there are also somewhere experiencing these same symptoms. And that's really fascinating because it also happens that people, after they watch the movie, they're having this conversation and they'll tell you like, this is where I'm trying to explain or have been trying to explain for years to my colleagues, for example, and they don't understand. It's so helpful for me to see this and to see it with my colleagues so they can better understand me. Mm. So we don't do it as a test, but it, does happen often that people say like this is me i recognize myself in this yeah i guess the thought i had was you know it could be really powerful for someone who's hasn't had that lived experience Mm -hmm. so the empathy might not be as strong Mm -hmm. they haven't felt it you know they don't know what it's like to have some of these microaggressions happen Mm -hmm. it's a dangerous thing because we we certainly want to wouldn't want to trigger someone exactly (laughs) and you know it gets into this like who needs that experience versus who doesn't right that's that would get kind of tricky yeah but and and that's the thing one thing we do is we do we do aftercare. Mm. So whenever uh, our uh, workshop is finished, the day after, uh, we'll contact the attendees to see how things are going and what it triggered with them. So we do have this conversation with our attendees just to make sure they're okay because indeed uh, it can be triggering also. And sometimes with some movies we use, I also say like this as a disclaimer, this can be shocking. So make sure you do want to see this. And if you don't want to have that experience, that's also okay. So you're not obligated to have the experience because you probably might know how it feels and how it works. Mm. So what's an example of something that tends to be a bit more on the shocking end of things that when folks see your experience... Uh, well, it's like you named it, for example, microaggression, but also when it comes to gender diversity, there are things happening in there where people sometimes are not aware of in communication that can be, well, uh, a little bit harassing, but you don't meant it to be uh, harassing, but the receiver decides so whenever it comes to body language, for example, if a guy stands and a woman is sitting and yeah, she's looking at you, she's not looking at you from a, from a nice point of view, let's say it like that. So when it comes to gender, there might be triggering things, but, but also if, if um, it depends on, even in this case, it depends on the receiver. There are a lot of things that can be triggering because if I have to speak for myself as a woman of color, I find the microaggression movies very shocking, and they my heart my heart always starts to beat faster. So I don't I really don't like watching them because it's also triggering for me. And I think a lot of people have like their own triggers when watching these movies. 
at the same time, depending on the discussion you have afterwards, it might be that you're able to share like, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I meant. And that people are like, oh, really? Oh, well, I did not know. And that response is priceless. It's priceless. Because it shows uh, that people, we often talk about things, uh, especially when it comes to experiences, but we don't really know what we're talking about if we haven't experienced it. But when somebody, when you're having that experience yourself, you're like, I thought I knew, but I have no idea. Mm. So what I also do is sometimes uh, before people go through the VR experience, I ask them, what do you know about cultural diversity or what do you know about microaggression? What do you know about it? And people will tell you that they know what it means, what the word is. So they're like, yeah, I do know what it is. And then afterwards they'll say, well, I had this ID, but I didn't have a clue now. I have experienced this. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. You know, mm -hmm. this idea that everyone's going to bring their lived experience in and yeah. that will impact how they're triggered mm -hmm. and what's going to be emotionally uh, struggling for them. Definitely. Definitely. And that's why I really, we really think it's important to do that aftercare uh, because it's our goal to have this empathy, to trigger empathy, but it's not our goal to traumatize people. Mm. At the same time, if you're thinking about you're experiencing a movie of maybe two or three minutes or maybe six minutes, five minutes, and some people are experiencing these kind of situations on daily basis, that's really harmful. Yeah, that's a totally different ballgame when it's just like constant chronic, mm -hmm. you know, just micro stress. It can... Yeah, can be quite overwhelming, even even though the individual things might not seem like a big deal. Mm -hmm. In some cases, the little things are a big deal. But, you know, it's like there's been a lot of research to show that micro stress can be quite overwhelming. Yeah, you're getting on long term, you're getting exhausted. You're there's so much there's so many things going on there. And, and I know it for myself because I'm working in this field, but I've also noticed how I've changed. And where I do feel safe, but I don't feel safe. So I'm getting like very aware, like, what do I need? And I'm also getting aware of where do I want to be and what are situations or places where I don't want to be because I simply don't feel safe. Mm. So it also makes you aware in some kind of way, but for everyone, it will be in a different way. Absolutely. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about the aftercare and how that works and how you approach it. Um, well, the aftercare is really having these conversations with our attendees, like how how did they feel, but also how did they look back at the experience the day after? Do they want to have more conversations about this? Or most people will say like, no, just thank you for reaching out, but I'm good. But it is nice to have this, to offer people this uh, opportunity to do have that second thought to do have that extra conversation if it's needed. So most people are like, no, it's I don't need anything more, but it is nice and it's good to have that option. It's very, it feels safe. It makes people feel safe. Mm. And that's exactly the reason why we offer this. Yeah, it feels nice to be checked in on, you know, at the very least, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to hear about how you help folks with their continued practice. Because I imagine, you know, as profound as it is putting these things on, 
it's always easy for people to regress to the mean or just go. There's a reason why it's called implicit bias, right? Like it's hardwired in mm -hmm. from a young age societally. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, like what kinds of things you're doing to help people, you know, with that continued practice? Well, so when you've had the experience, when, when you attend our, uh, our three months program, you will, after the training, you will continue with coaching. So um, you will finish the, the training part with your own personal action list. And in that action list, you will uh, continue, you will take the action list uh, to your coaching and your coach will help you to realize whatever it is that you want to realize in these next three months. So, and we also challenge them to do baby steps or to do at least a step, which they are sure of that they will take the step. So don't make it too challenging, especially when it comes to DEI. We do understand that people want to realize things, but sometimes small changes in long term are very big changes. And it's more important that people commit to something they're really going to do instead of putting big, big goals, which are never going to realize. So, and for us as trainers, that's the biggest challenge to help them to realize the good action list from there and continue with their coach who will help them. Because I always say after you're finished with your training, then it really starts because you are going to have to go back to the workplace or into society. And there you'll get the chance to show your new behavior. And while you're going to start applying your new behavior, you're probably going to fall because it's like the first time walking. Uh, you did not walk in one day. <laughs> so the first step, you will fall. Um, but that's why it's good to have your coach there to have a conversation with your coach uh, to to spread to share your thoughts, share your experience. But your coach is also your cheerleader to say like, "Hey, you did well. You, at least you tried." But now come on, dust yourself off, and go back into that ring and try again, and maybe with some tips and tricks if it's needed. The reflection, the opportunity to have that reflection with your coach, that's really valuable. But also somebody will tell you, like, you're going to be okay. You're tried. Now go back and do it again. And so people then get into their coaching part. And then after three months, so they have three months, they have one hour of, of coaching. And they can, if they want to, they can use one whole hour or they can spread their time. And after that, they'll go back to the second training day. And in the second training day, they will also share what they experienced. And then they'll also share like who felt after the first training. And then everybody would put his hands up to the show people like we all fall when we're trying new behavior. Mm. And that's perfectly fine. That's all okay. It's all part of the process. But it doesn't mean we have to stop. It means we have to try again and continue and maybe find new ways. So we'll share the stories of success. I love that. It's continuously leaning into that empathy and also this idea that, um, you know, how do we be vulnerable mm -hmm. and just and keep listening? Keep listening. Definitely keep listening. Keep trying. But it's, it's what you're saying. Like, it's our goal to help people change their behavior. And if we want to help people change their behavior, we have to show them how 
and we have to seduce them. We don't have to, if we, if we force people to change, it will be much harder. But what if we seduce people to change, to show them what it's worth for them to change? That's much more interesting and people are far more willing to do that instead of forcing people like you need to change and you're like, okay, I'm going to do it because you want it. Mm. But how about I want to do this because I want it myself? Yeah. It's like, how do we internalize it? Mm -hmm. Definitely. So good. You know, one of the things you mentioned in the pre-show chat that I was really curious about was like this notion of needed change and like, and what is real change? Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to hear more about that. Yeah, well, when it when it comes to DEI, we need real change, and that's that was also my frustration about the DEI market, because I noticed there wasn't a lot changing. But also, when I was talking to people, everybody was having that same thing, and a lot of people did not want to attend these DEI trainings anymore. And even I think it was two weeks ago, we did this workshop at a recruitment agency. And the guy, uh, uh, when the workshop was finished, he came to us and he told us, like, when we started, I was skeptic because I was like, oh, there's this workshop again of two women who want us to change, etc." And I like, oh, I was, I'm so skeptic. And afterwards, he was like, wow, this was so different. This was so powerful. This really helped me. And I'm really blown away. The way we did the workshop, but also what the VR experience triggered, but also the conversation afterwards. And I think people are fed up to just see PowerPoints, but also the PowerPoints don't show them what to do different. So if if you're well willing to change your behavior, if nobody shows you how, it's frustrating So a lot of people get frustrated because of all these false DEI trainings, which aren't going anywhere. But also when it comes to the impact on the job market, the impact of well-being for people on the job market, it's actually shocking that things are going so slow. And if we look at people leaving their jobs at this moment in a lot of places, I think that's good. It's good that people start saying we're fed up. We're fed up. We want to be treated better. And that's, it's a sign. And it's also a chance. And I think that's where the change is also needed. That's why the change is also needed. If you're a good employer, you're going to be rewarded by good employees. You're going to be rewarded by people finding you. But being a good employer means that you're giving everybody the opportunity to be themselves, to be the best version of themselves. But when you're getting the best version of people, you can also get the other side, the ugly side. But that's okay. That shouldn't be a problem. If we just agree with each other, what are the rules to work together? How are we going to work together? What's acceptable and what isn't acceptable? And I think that is where we're standing now. And what we need now is action. We need action. We need well-willing employers who are saying, like, we are committed to be the best employer we can be so we can be the best for our employees. But also, if we really want to be the best company in our segment or in our country, this is one of the most important ingredients. 
So I'm like, what are we talking about? <laughs> Why is this even <laughs> needed to point out? <laughs> but it is needed probably. The people did not, a lot of companies are like, but everything is going fine. Everything is okay. And I'm now like, I'm thinking like, is it? Is it? If everything is really okay, why are your employees leaving your company? Mm, such an important point. You know, I think mm -hmm. with attrition mm -hmm. and the competition in the job market, and also just when we think about companies that are able to generate better outcomes, whether it's for society or just for the bottom line, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of evidence that points toward, you know, engaged and supported teams and there you can't have engaged and supported teams without a focus on DEI and, and really understanding those mechanisms. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why I'm saying, where, what are we talking about? <laughs> because every, every year when people are presenting their, their new goal for this new year, I think at this moment in 2022, if you're presenting what your targets are for the next year and what your plans are, and you leave DEI out of it, it's it's like a plan with a big hole in it. You're never going to realize these targets mm. or whatever it is that your plans are. You're never going to realize it fully because there's a big missing link. So Anita, we're coming to our end here, and I want to make sure that we save enough time for you to leave our listeners with a final thought. Well, what, what, what's great... Um, I, I have shared a lot of my thoughts, but my final thought is I really invite everyone to really take a good look at uh, these employees leaving companies. It's a sign. It's a sign that your company is bleeding, but it's also a sign that that place is an unhealthy place for people to go to work to. So when it comes to employers, I want to challenge you to look at how hard you're bleeding are you even aware that you're bleeding? Because I come to places where people aren't even aware that they're bleeding and they don't even know why they are bleeding. Well, so I would say, find that out. Find out, are you bleeding and why are you bleeding and how hard are you bleeding? And when it comes to how to stop the bleeding, well, I think I've shared enough. And for employees, just give yourself the opportunity to work at a place where you are being valued, where you are being safe, where you can be your whole self, where you can bring your whole self. That's uh, my final thought. Well, thank you, Anita. It's been such a pleasure chatting today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and thank you for the invitation. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com